Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Charles Fairchild to discuss his 33 and a third book on Danger Mouse, The Grey Album. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Charles Fairchild, author of the 33 and a third book, The Grey Album by Danger Mouse. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. This is an important book about an important work. How to start this? Like, what's the most important thing about The Grey Album? What's the first thing people should know about this album? Um, I think the first thing is... It's a bit musicologic-y for me, but to me, the first thing that's important about it is that it's part of a larger tradition of very similar kind of music. And when you look at that tradition sort of historically or socially or even technically, the album makes an enormous amount of sense uh, right down to its smallest details. And I think that's, I mean, it's tradition is a kind of word that's sort of fusty and it's like, really? I thought this was cutting edge and technically proficient and all that. And it's like, no, actually it's, it's part of a long tradition of similar kinds of music. And when you see it that way, you're like, oh, okay. It all makes so much sense now. And let's answer this, the who, what, where, when, and why. Tell us who Brian Joseph Burton is what the Grey Album is, when it was dropped, and what the immediate reaction was, and how he would distribute it initially. Sure. So Brian Burton at the time was just an aspiring DJ. You know, he did um, mixtapes and he did club dates and he did uh, mashups. And he was trying to get into the incredibly crowded and competitive field of 
dance and hip hop and pop music production. You know, it's it's incredibly difficult to get your name out there because there's just so many people. Um, and you know, he was dropping mixtapes and putting them on websites, and people were distributing them, and he was trying to get his name out there. And um, he made the Grey album, I think it was 2002 and three. It took him a while, he said. Um, and his goal was just like to create something that had never been sort of heard before. That's this unique collection of both familiar and unfamiliar sounds and to try and get some attention for it. And I think um, what's funny is he succeeded beyond even his wildest dreams. So it was about 2003. He worked on it. He said he worked on it for several months and um, he had already done five or six mixtapes. He was, uh, you know, starting to get a name as a, as a, both a producer and a club DJ, but he hadn't really hit yet. And when he made this album, for whatever reason, this is the one that really got people's attention. And I think part of it is because it's so skilled. It's also, he's really showing off in parts too, which is, I find very entertaining, but also it was just such a um, sharp and bright and original uh, concept that he worked through uh, as thoroughly as you could work through a concept. And, um, by early 2004, I think it was, um, people in this sort of this sort of existing online network of people sharing files and sharing beats and showing each other, um, you know, their product and their drafts and all that kind of stuff. Um, people in that network heard this thing and really went crazy for it and started distributing it really widely, much more widely than anything that he had ever done before. And, um, you know, long story short, it caught the attention of people who owned the music that he was uh, manipulating, and uh, they were quite unhappy about it. Uh, they sent him a cease and desist letter, um, which was, you know, arguably solid on technical legal grounds, but um, it was really only a problem because he got so much attention for this piece. I mean, that was the big, that was the only real issue because literally hundreds of people were doing precisely the same things with music they didn't own and none of them got cease and desist letters or hardly any of them got cease and desist letters. So, you know, by 2004, early 2004, uh, it was a genuine um, contest between the community of music makers like Burton and the people who owned the music that they were uh, manipulating. And what music did he make the Grey album from? So he took originally took the vocals only uh, release of Jay-Z's Black Album. Now, the Black Album, of course, is probably the most visible and, you know, arguably most important rap album of its era, most important hip hop year album of its era. It was kind of a fulcrum album that brought Jay-Z to genuine global superstardom and I think pushed hip hop into realms that it had not quite been before, like just this kind of astoundingly huge success. Um, 
So he took the vocals only release of that. It was a, a legitimate commercial release um, that a lot of hip hop artists do. They release just the vocals of their album because they want people to take them and use those vocals in clubs, dance clubs, hip hop clubs. They want to use them at uh, hip hop battles. They want them. They want them out there as many places they can get. And the, the idea is like, yes, please take my stuff and manipulate it. Do what you like with it. Um, but Burton also took the Beatles' White Album which is, of course, the famous double album, the odd mix of um, styles and techniques and kind of just random stuff that they did in, um, what was it, 67, 68, I think it was, 69. Uh, he took that, all the, uh, as many sounds as he could find from that and created his beats uh, to, to underpin Jay-Z's vocals. And it was the mashing of these two things together that made makes this album so um, vivid and um, su surprising. I mean, I've listened to this thing a lot. <laughs> it still can surprise me all these years later. Yeah, it holds up as a solid album on its own. I believe it came in on multiple best of lists for the year 2004. I think yeah. it won first place. I think E.T. Entertainment this week named it number one. Rolling Stone rated it number 58 in the top 100 albums of the 2000s. Spin rated it 113 out of the 125 best albums of the last 25 years in 2010. Quote, the best rock band ever plus the best rapper ever equals the best mashup ever. So this was a really critically praised work. It was also very popular, um, you know, massively downloaded. And that in part was because of this reaction by Capitol Records sending the cease and desist letter and multiple websites then took it upon themselves to fight for the right not for Danger Mouse to sell this because he never even tried to sell this thing but for people to hear it for people to download it and people to own it and that seems to have been what kind of turned the tide because the legality is all on the side of the quote-unquote property owners and there is literally no recognized right to sample songs like you have a right to cover a song they have to license you the song if you change the lyrics that becomes a little bit problematic but if you want to just cover somebody's songs and you pay the fee they have to let you there's no such rule for sampling. There's literally no recognition that sampling and crafting songs out of collages of found sounds is even a legitimate art form in the law. Is that correct? Um, that is correct. Um, and in some cases, they don't even have to let you cover it if they don't want to. If someone says, you know what? No, you can't use my song. Well, too bad. You can't use it. Um, Usually it's in everybody's interest for someone to use it. But, you know, you never know. People are weird. They have weird grudges. I think one of the things about this album that really set Capitol Records off was its prominence. Uh, I think it was just like, okay, we know this has been going on for years in the underground. And we've benefited from it because some of our old albums can come off the dusty shelves that they've been sitting on for 20 years. We can sell more, you know. Um, but this was like... People, I think there was a moment in the early 2000s where people were just like, this is art and we're going to push it. And they were aggressive. And, you know, they were a bit uh, like, yeah, look, this is our stuff. We're not going to pretend and that to hide it anymore. And I think the Grey album hit 
at just that right moment where it was this incredibly skilled compilation um, of these sounds within this tradition, and then that tradition kind of reaching a certain prominence, a certain level of of uh, pervasiveness in the culture that made a lot of people say, you know what, forget it. We're just going to be really bold about this. Well, let's go ahead and hear the first song off the Grey album. This is Danger Mouse's public service announcement. song off the gray album combining jay-z's song public service announcement with george harrison's song long 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 from the white album and it's pretty apparent immediately upon hearing it that you're you're hearing a tour de force that this is this is a a a sample delic producer who knows what he's doing who's playing with your expectations with two very very familiar works of art and he's colliding them this was an era when the mashup is just um really becoming common courtesy but it's about 14 years after the big breakthrough albums of of the sample collage, the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, Public Enemies, Nation of Millions, Stale of Souls, um, Three Feet High and Rising. And that entire school of hip hop where producers were just grabbing things and sampling them, reconceptualizing pop culture, not just songs, but also advertisements and bits, snippets of TV and movie dialogue, recontextualizing it, creating a whole new thing. That stuff got crushed legally in the early 90s. Busta Rhymes sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan, De La Soul sued by the Turtles. And the legal decisions were just brutal. Like the judge had utter contempt for hip hop, saw no legitimate artistic purpose to that. And nobody's ever really gone back and tried to, you know, fix that in the law. And your book, as much as it's an analysis and an homage to the Grey album, it's also a pretty harsh indictment of the whole neoliberal capitalist process and the nature of corporations, that they have to be endlessly money-sucking and constantly seeking to raise profits and nothing else. And, and you've got this great quote, it is the whims of property owners that determine when art is legal or not. Can you elaborate on that one? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that was one of the main themes that really caught my attention about this whole issue really early because I was like, you know, I teach popular music and you can't teach popular music without teaching hip hop. You can't teach hip hop without teaching dance music and you can't teach that without disco. And, and you, as soon as you start working your way back, you're all the way back to the 50s before you know it. These are legitimate uh, outgrowths of a series of musical traditions that are established in their communities. Um, they have all the uh, attributes of art, aesthetic values, community values, relationships between producers and consumers and audiences and artists. And one of the big issues about this was what I regard as a 
I mean, I regard it as a kind of a technical issue. Um, the fact that someone worked out how to extract individual sounds from a previously existing recording and recontextualize it almost entirely in some cases where it's not even recognizable um, or extract those sounds and then play with our recognition of them. I mean, how many times have you heard a hip hop track and you're like, oh, what's that sample? What's that sample? And that's part of the aesthetic. That is to say, to sort of dangle this little bit of familiarity in front of you. Now, the opposite, you know, and this, this is a tradition that's been growing since forever, since the 1950s, really. On the other side, in the exact same time period, the music industry um, has become not just a music industry, but a global entertainment industry. They've been very capable at manipulating the political processes in a number of countries to their benefit. That is, they've been able to um, help change copyright law to make it more restrictive. They've been able to restrict um, music distribution by sort of clamping down on certain technologies. Uh, and again, these are political battles that are not one way or the other all the time, but they're complex. And this is a very powerful industry because, of course, they're very prominent. And during this exact same period in which this, these, these musical traditions grew, you also have this um, restrictive tradition of recognizing sound recordings as a very specific type of property. And that is to say, it's not just the notes or the measures or the even the performance that's copyrighted. It's the actual sound, the actual um, sounds that hit your ear in many cases are unique, regarded as legally unique. So if you take those and use them for something else, even if they're unrecognizable, um, that's still a violation of someone's property rights. And this is, of course, what neoliberalism is about, is establishing more and more things as property. And then from that, being able to enforce one's rights to that property. So you have these two contending forces, one that's been going sort of artistically expansive and the other which has been legally restrictive. And it's, um, th there's a, I, I described the Grey album as a fulcrum point between these two forces that caught a lot of people's attention. And one of the contexts of this is that um, late in the 20th century, there were a number of thinkers, primarily coming out of Silicon Valley, writing books like the Clue Train Manifesto. And, and I've got a quote from you here that the radical imaginings of various theorists positing a series of dead industries littering the information highway had very serious consequences. And those were the increasingly draconian extension, reinvention, and enforcement of intellectual property law. So it's one of these moments where there's a new technology that's obviously very powerful. And yet the claims for it were even more exaggerated. And, and there was this sort of techie idealism, this, this very libertarian idea that the, the internet would just route around censorship, that, that these old companies were old in the way and they were about to be blown away. But all that really did in a concrete sense was trigger this backlash and things like the 1996 Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the United States that expanded the powers of these corporations enormously. And you've got this five points, five ideas that you that you introduced early in the book. I'm just gonna run through them real quick. Number one, the music industry had not been subverted. Number two, 
the music industry has run on an operational logic that values ever increasing profitability and productivity over everything else. And this logic demands that the industry retain tight control over its intellectual property. Number three, the music industry's main goal is to do everything possible to make its property more useful, valuable, and profitable, including corrupting democracy. Number four, the suppression of the Grey Album is not an isolated strike on an isolated outsider, but the predictable and obligatory response of a system. The normal day-to-day -day musical activities such as file sharing or mixtape making have been defined as external to the legitimate music economy. Number five, the Grey Album is important specifically because it is not revolutionary, nor is it in any way a radical break with the past. Explain that, especially that last one. Yeah, sure. So if you look at, I mean, I think most people know the, the general history of, of hip hop. Um, but if you look at uh, African-American musical practice going back to the 1950s, um, you know, something like rhythm and blues in the late 40s kind of grows out of jazz and becomes a kind of stripped down, aggressively rhythmic version of certain types of uh, the blues. But what you find in the in the making of that music, and, and this is true of soul music and later on disco, is you find an enormous amount of sharing. And it's not necessarily... Um, explicit or even people are often not even aware of it but they're sharing riffs they're sharing styles they're sharing ways of making this music they're sharing ensemble practices right when hip-hop comes along what are they sampling they're sampling soul records they're sampling disco records they're creating disco beats right so hip-hop is integrated by definition into these previously existing forms. The big difference is, of course, that uh, it grew out of uh, a kind of a sample, what people call a sample culture, but you can call it a lot of different things, dub culture, etc. It grew out of particular ways of manipulating electronic sound that started in Jamaica in the 19 sort of 60s, because Jamaica didn't have any record making plants. So they had to basically perform um, with vinyl records rather than um, you know, producing their own sort of things. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, the point is, what happens with the Grey Album? The Grey Album is, there's, I find it a perfect example of this tradition of gathering together all these different things, all these bits and pieces, manipulating them and reassembling them into a new form, right? into um, a new kind of beat, uh, beats with new textures, new sounds, new sonic relationships. Also, what's to me most exciting about it is the way in which he samples not just drums and bass and guitar, but he samples vocals. And he puts Jay-Z's dominating vocals in conversation with the Beatles' sort of background vocals, if you will, sampling them. And so what he's doing is creating this kind of really nice, subtle, back and forth tension between the two you know these four white british singers and this african-american rapper and you find all these different themes that they share in common all these different ideas we can talk about that later my point is that's an aesthetic act and it's the kind of aesthetic act that goes back at least 100 years where people take existing materials reference it present it in a slightly manipulated way and then build on it Right. 
if you want, you can argue that classical music, for example, is mostly that. Composers building on each other's practices and altering them in a kind of long-term conversation between artists. Now, the problem is when you do that by manipulating sound recordings, the people who own those sound recordings get very fussy. And the the core issue is not just the act of sampling. It's the fact that the music industry, since about mid to late 1950s, has become increasingly reliant on its existing stores of property. That is to say, in the late 50s, they started buying back all the publishing rights to their songs because they found that they could exploit them more profitably by doing that. That is to say, they could put them in films and television shows. They could uh, let other artists produce different versions of them. You may look at the charts from the 1950s and 60s, and you'll see the same song appearing over and over and over again in all these different versions. Fast forward to the present, and that's mostly what you have. You, the, the, the ability to exploit the storehouse of intellectual property a record label owns has increased exponentially. And of course, now it's become almost, I'd say probably a full 50% or even more of what they what they do, right? Because they can license things to all these streaming services, they can license them to video games, to films, television shows, et cetera, et cetera. There's more and more venues for this. So if you're relying on your business surviving on your exploitation of intellectual property, you really can't let anyone else exploit it unofficially or illegally because it it undermines the whole business model. Absolutely. And let's hear our, our next song snippet. This is one of the first sort of legit big time gigs that Danger Mouse got after the Grey album. This is his production work with Gorillaz, a group of Damon Albarn of The Blur and Jamie Hewlett, the British cartoonist and comic book artist. This is Gorillaz, Kids with Guns. And, and uh, Burton actually got a co-writing credit on this number. the gorillas kids with guns and you can hear you know references to the kinks you really got me you can hear salt and peppers push it in there it's exactly what you're talking about this delightful creative conversation that tickles the listener's ear and challenges you to say hey what is that of course this is a legal production where they cleared all the not even necessarily samples. I think the the, the Kinks uh, nod is, is a baseline that they probably played in the studio. And even the Push It, I don't think, is a sample. I think they recorded the background vocals just quoting those songs. But, of course, you have to share the songwriting credit. But, you know, very quickly, Danger Mouse was established as a player in the legitimate business who had gotten famous as an illegitimate player in this business. It's um, pretty fascinating stuff. But you, you get to this music incorporated section and you talk about how um 
all through the 90s, the 80s and the 90s, that the, the music industry attempted to, quote, constrain music consumption to the full length CD album that they 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 even literally eliminated the single. They had cassette singles and a couple others, but that was very marginal. They were really pushing people in the 90s to pay twenty dollars for a CD of you know, 70 minute CD to get one song in many cases. And that really set them up for a, it set up a pop popular appetite for a change in the system. Napster obviously was that one. Um, but talk about that process of, of how the, the record industry was sort of narrowing our options and how that came back and bit them in the ass. Yeah, sure. So I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty old. So when I was a kid, I had singles and I would ride my little bike down to the store and I'd pay 75 cents and I'd get two songs on a little 45 vinyl thing. And they, they were gold to me when I was a kid. Um, by far one of the best things ever. 45s or singles, I mean, that format was a product of the vinyl era because vinyl was cheap and easy to produce and it was really sturdy, right? And... It took off. They were super popular. They were popular forever. I mean, the whole visible end of the popular music industry is based on hit singles. For whatever reasons, and I think I know the reasons, but I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure that by the mid-1980s, they were like, people are just buying singles. Why are we doing this? So the notion within the music industry was cannibalization. They thought that the sales of singles would cannibalize album sales. That is, that is, if you bought the one song you liked, you wouldn't buy the album. Now, that's never really been proven to be true. What has been proven to be true over the last 30 years, would, in at least the way I see it, is that people continually want more venues through which they can experience music, on the phones, at home, in the car, etc. So the notion of cannibalization was kind of speculative. Regardless, it took hold in the music industry, and the music industry can be a very small world. And so when one big record company said, we're not doing singles anymore, all the other ones followed. And so by the mid to late 80s, early 90s, you couldn't actually buy a single in most places, in most cases, most of the time. And by the late 90s, it was just flat out impossible. If you wanted to listen to something, you had to buy the album. And that was true almost universally. And obviously, you know, MP3s were bubbling along in a kind of gray area on this weird thing called the internet, which hardly anyone had heard of outside of big universities in the 90s. But when people started working out ways to make computers talk to each other more effectively and more quickly, that utterly blew the business model out of the water because you could get singles relatively easily. Now, I was, I'm old enough to have used uh, Napster and LimeWire in their first incarnations, and it was hilariously slow by today's standards. You would download a two-megabyte file, and it would sometimes take two hours. Um, but the point is, soon as that happened, it was like this little tiny crack in the dam of their property, of the intellectual property music industry, just blew the whole thing wide open. And there was just a massive flood. And that's really when the, the litigiousness really got going because they, they saw an existential threat. And to some extent, you know, I don't think they were wrong, but I also don't think that 
um, the music industry was ever going to actually disappear. It was just teetering quite precariously for a few years. Anyway, what that ended up doing was changing people's perceptions about what was possible. And one of the things that resulted from this pretty directly was the iTunes store. And the major music labels were really reluctant. They tried everything they could do to not sell the rights to Apple, but there was just too much commercial pressure and uh, too much political pressure, uh, informal political pressure from um, consumers. And I think it was uh, what, 2003 or four, you could, the, you could buy the first uh, legal MP3 file on your computer without leaving the house. And that's, that's the cleavage point. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll talk about how the Grey Album fit into this context. And in the book, you've got this great image. You say that the Grey Album stood perfectly balanced on the cusp of two tectonic plates as they shifted and crunched one another into new shapes. And you cite this guy, Barry Kernfeld, who's done a lot of study of the history of the music industry. And he talks about this recurring pattern. He calls it a generic situation where it's monopolists or attempted monopolists versus users who are doing something the monopolists didn't foresee. And this goes all the way back to the days when sheet music was the, the fundamental business unit of the music industry. And you had musicians passing around what they called fake books. And this was back when jazz musicians would be adapting you know, Broadway standards to bebop. And they would have these books that they would they would print up and, and distribute that had the, the quick and dirty chord structures of all these popular songs so that musicians who didn't necessarily have them memorized could quickly look at them and learn to play them. And this was a big legal fight at the time. And and it was something where the, the industry thought they had everything nailed down, but they didn't foresee fake books coming along. But then the same thing happens again with mixtapes and file sharing. And Kernfield has this theory that there's this that it results in either assimilation or obsolescence. And you know, assimilation is when the music industry sort of throws in the towel and says, okay, we'll let MP3s be sold on iTunes. Okay, we'll let our music be streamed on Spotify. And then there's also obsolescence when you've got things like eight tracks or cassettes, CDs, even file sharing um, passed into me memory and people don't, don't use them anymore. And he said that the music biz survival is a balancing act between the two. And there was a number of measures taken in the 2000s that you, that you talked through. And you say that our collective musical resources are being fenced off. Can you kind of talk about the big picture implications of what's going on in this struggle? Sure. Um, so I think one of the, the main issues was when the, the Internet emerged as something that was more than just a kind of a technical way of transferring data or distributing information, when it became a genuinely social and cultural phenomenon. Um, there was a lot of um, anxiety, I guess I would call it, in within the entertainment industry. And the reason why it hit the music industry first was, was because of the nature of the MP3 being a very small file size. It was designed to be mobile. And of course, when something like that is designed to be mobile and the network exists to transport it, it's going to move. And the logic of the MP3 is the exact opposite of the logic I described earlier. What the music industry was doing when they were getting rid of singles was to try and stop music from moving so much, right? To, 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 to nail it down or 
lumber it with so much other stuff that it moved more slowly. And it sounds strange, but to some extent, the music industry really didn't care in the 90s if they sold fewer copies and made more money, if that makes sense. It's a terrible logic for people who like music, but that was that was where they were going. So you have these two underlying ideals, big, heavy things that cost a lot that we sell a few of versus light, extremely fast mobile things that we sell a lot of. And those two things bash each other out. Now, the reason why the music industry went for the big heavy things that cost a lot was not just because they could make more money doing it, it was also because it helped them control this property that they owned. And, you know, when someone's looking to invest in a company, for example, I'm going to invest in EMI or universal uh, music, you're going to look at what assets they have and what the value of those assets are and how they exploit those assets, because that's where you're going to make your money as an investor. So within the sort of capital markets, those are the issues that are at stake. So you have to sort of at least make a show that you're doing something about this. Now, what I think the other argument is, is actually we could have these light, small, quickly moving MP3s and people can buy them on their computer um, and it's all seamless uh, integrated e-commerce. Um, that is a very different sort of model. Right. So if you're looking to invest in that, you're investing in very different things. You're investing in connectivity. You're investing in the size of networks. So what's interesting about to me about the Grey Album in this context is that it represented the latter. Right. It represented the ability of a network to be robust and functional and self-contained and make decisions on a kind of consensus basis within that network. So when all those people downloaded the Grey album, they were making a decision. They were saying, this is the kind of network I want to be a part of, and this is the sort of thing I want it to do for me. So that's why I say the Grey album was kind of perched on this little uh, moment or, or precipice of a, new, of a new way of doing things. Let's talk about the way things were being done in that era. You talk about the DMCA, which I mentioned earlier. You say it's, it created an increasingly influential built-in bias against a small artist such as Danger Mouse making art, and an increasingly influential bias for a big company like Google, which sells your attention to advertisers and your user data to just about anybody. Then you talk about the three types of rights to music, ownership rights, authorship rights, and natural rights. You say only ownership rights are recognized. Authorship rights are occasionally recognized in very specific and limited circumstances, and natural rights are not recognized at all. In the case of the Gray Album, the author's desires were at best to potentially trouble some irrelevance, carefully deployed for rhetorical effect. And both Jay-Z and Paul McCartney basically gave a thumbs up to Danger Mouse, and Paul McCartney kind of laughed at Capitol Records for having, you know, blown this thing up and made some bad decisions trying to squelch this. But they didn't ask Jay-Z and Paul McCartney what to do, or nobody called Ringo Starr. They just, you know, filed their cease and desist because they own the stuff. Then they say, you say, our natural rights to music, to listen to it, to make meaning from it, to reproduce it and make it a part of our lives have no place in these struggles. And that's like the fundamental right. That's, that's the most important thing is the public right to a shared culture. 
And you say that the ideology on the surface seems to value originality and artistry above derivation and copying, the sanctity of property over the unlicensed use of that property by others, but this is only a mirage. The artistry and originality of the Gray Album cannot be formally or legally recognized by definition because of its relationship to its source materials. Capitol Records did not write the music. They did not invest any time or money in its production, and they did not believe in the content in any significant matter. They bought it at auction, no more, no less. Let's hear another sample, and then I want to I get you to, to elaborate on this. This is the group that Danger Mouse formed with CeeLo Green of the Goody Mob called Gnarls Barkley, which ended up becoming more commercially successful than either of them had ever been in their careers thus far. This is their song, Who Cares, from their first album. And that was Gnarls Barkley, the partnership of CeeLo Green and Danger Mouse doing Who Cares? So, yeah, tell us about this, that, that Capital is really kind of, in a way, the least invested per, part, party in this, in this struggle. They didn't make any of this art. They didn't make the commentary on the art that Danger Mouse did, the new art. Um, and yet they're the only ones whose rights are recognized. How did this happen and what does that mean? So I think um, it happened through a very long story of the development of copyright law in, in Western societies, which I won't go into because um, you can just Google that and you'll find a great, a, a multitude of great summaries. But one of the main reasons why this happened is because of a, an underlying legal decision uh, or, or, or a preference. That is to say, uh, and, and it's based on property rights more generally. And I think, not, not to go too philosophical here, but property rights are the foundation of our society in many ways, for good and ill. Um, you buy something, you own it, no one else can use it. Doesn't matter what you don't have to. You don't have to do anything with it. Um, you can throw it away. It, it's it's yours to do with as you will. And obviously, this creates its own issues. But what usually happens with artists, especially in the music industry, this is especially true of the music industry, is that in order to get any prominence or any distribution or any meaningful mass relationship with an audience, you almost always have to sell your rights to your music to some extent to sort of trade on that to be to become part of this sort of larger network of production and consumption. Now, what that means is that someone like Paul McCartney, for example, um, doesn't really have a lot of say over what happens to his music because, of course, it was sold. Um, when was that? It was in the 80s it was sold sold out. Yeah, the, the Beatles lost control of their publishing in the late 60s, their company uh, Northern Songs that they had that they had founded with Dick James and Brian Epstein. That was sold at auction. They still had minority stakes in it. And then in the 80s, Michael Jackson 
kind of snuck in there and swooped it up when it when it came publicly available because Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney were kind of fussing about what price they should offer. And McCartney had famously advised Michael Jackson to get into buying music publishing. And then when Jackson became in arrears to Sony, Sony ended up owning it. And there's sort of like a gravitational pull where these big entities just end up owning more and more and more of the intellectual property. Yeah. And we see that now with uh, the hypnosis song fund and all that, you know, and um, hedge funds and private equity buy, buying up these rights as well, because they think there's something they can do with them. They think they can exploit them. So th that's what makes authorship rights subsidiary to ownership rights because uh, ownership rights trump them economically. Now, the reason I say that our natural rights to music aren't recognized is because despite the fact no one's going to prevent you from listening to music, right? So let's let's imagine a world in which you're punished for a, a crime and the punishment is you will never be allowed to listen to music again. You will never be allowed to hum a tune. You'll never be allowed to imagine what a song means, right? All those things which everybody does just organically as part of their lives. That's, that's what I mean by natural rights to music. So they're kind of inalienable in, in a way that um, is, I think, intuitively comprehensible for all of us. But the point is, in these tussles between artists and um, people owning the rights to the music they're trying to manipulate, the natural rights of us to hear that music and to make sense of it and to have it enrich us have no place in these arguments. You know, you'll see no legal reference to any of these. They're only the occasional rhetorical reference. There's a there's a wonderful article by Charles Mann in The Atlantic, which is one of the best things I've read from that period. And at one point, um, Lars Ulrich from Metallica is being yelled at by a crowd of people who are angry at him for suing Napster. And... Um, Lars says, look, man, this is our music. And someone yells back, it's our music too, Lars. Right. And it's a nice rhetorical device. But that's what I mean by natural rights. To some extent, when an artist presents their work in public, it's no longer theirs um, in a kind of metaphorical sense. It belongs to us. We all feel an ownership. But that doesn't have any recognition and it has no formal recognition. So anything that we might benefit, any benefit we might take from this is just sort of that's uh, a nice idea. It's sort of emotionally satisfying, but doesn't have any real legal teeth. And I, and I think that's the underlying issue here. That, um, and that's the big problem that I have with a lot of this stuff, is, you know, if Capitol Records decided, you know what, we don't want you to listen to the Beatles anymore. They could just take it all back. Couldn't play it on the radio. Couldn't play it in a TV show. Couldn't play it in a document. They're not going to do that. But my point is. If they were crazy and felt like it, they could. And and that's that to me is is the issue. That to me is the problem. And that's actually happened to a couple of groups. I'm thinking of the group Power Bottom, which had sort of a Me Too uh, affiliated scandal and Burger Records, which had a number of Me Too affiliated scandals. And and as far as I know, all of that stuff was pulled from streaming. And and if you enjoyed those that music, it doesn't matter that you weren't involved in any of the Me Too issues you don't get to hear it anymore. And I find that incredibly ominous. And also things like Woody Guthrie's This Land Is Your Land, which was famously based off a Carter family song, which in turn was based off of an old Broadway uh, vaudeville song from the 1890s that A.P. Carter was able to repurpose and recopyright. But in these tightening political times, you can just easily see 
you know, political anthems being just quietly erased from the streaming services. You see Neil Young pulling himself from Spotify. So the the stuff is kind of getting an ominous and spooky turn. Let's hear our last um, musical snippet. This is a collaboration between Danger Mouse and MC Doom called Danger Doom. This is the song Sofa King. To a game of strip limbo. Uh, he couldn't find no remorse. A wink is as good as a nod to a blind horse. Of course, his technique was from a divine source. Never knew the price of ice or what swine cost. One guy tried to bite the heat. It's when he discovered the other, other white meat. Oh, the one they hate so well. He sure keeps his cycle like the old Bates Motel. They came to ask him for at least some new tracks, but only got confronted by the beast with two backs. Knock, Mouse is a made man. Villain laid it down like the best laid plan. Bell the cat, who the hell is that near the middle? Got y'all, but it's not all bearing Skittles. Prepare the vittles, got riddles. And that was Danger Doom, a collaboration between the late MC Doom and Danger Mouse. And. It shows you just how quickly Danger Mouse ascended into the very sort of pantheon of hip hop producers. He's working with people like MC Doom, who you know work with people like Madlib, who work with people like Jay Dilla, who work with people like Questlove and Q-Tip and and Erica Baidu, et cetera, et cetera. And you know he suddenly becomes a made man through the controversy and the popularity of the Grey album. One great great point you make in this book is that you know Danger Mouse didn't make any direct money off the Grey album. The Beatles didn't make any direct money off the Grey album. Jay Z didn't make any direct money off of this. The record industry itself didn't make any money off this, and it was one of the most popular albums of its year. It's just a classic case of spiting, you know, cutting off their nose to spite their face. Now, there's another thing I want to get at because it's it's really interesting. And it's sort of contrary to the way most people, many people, talk about this stuff. There's this what you call the revolutionary reputation of sample-based art, that somehow it's inherently subversive, et cetera, et cetera. You call that a rhetorical dead end and say that what it really is is just the use of pre-existing recorded materials and the play of recognition between practitioners and an audience that these are long-standing musical traditions that go at least back to you know Cool Herc in the Bronx in the 1970s, the beginnings of hip-hop, and, you know, um, David Mancuso and the other early disco DJs who were who were creating new music with with two turntables and a microphone by mixing two records, extending a record, extending the, the funky part of a record and keeping the dance floors moving. So there really isn't anything new or revolutionary going on by the time Danger Mouse does this in 2004. And in fact, he's kind of on the cusp of a wave of mashup artists, people like Girl Talk, a.k.a. Greg Michael Gillis. Uh, you know, you've got Freelance Hellraiser doing A Stroke of Genius, Smells Like Booty by Soul Wax. Some of this stuff was just pretty crude, slapping the vocals from one song onto the, the musical instru- instruments of another song. What was qualitatively different about what Danger Mouse was doing from the kind of mashups that were briefly popular at that time? Um, well, you, you raise a, some good issues with those specific titles you mentioned. Um, Smells Like Booty was, um, you know, I think, deliberately crude mashup where they sort of just mashed on those vocals onto Nirvana and, you know, voila, ha ha, isn't that funny? And it's, you know, I think it's hilarious myself. I think it's very entertaining, but part of what people like Girl Talk and um, Soul Wax um, were, were getting at was a kind of, a kind of expansive imagining of the different ways that different types of music could sort of relate to each other because you know they're all they were all young at 
a moment in which there was a sudden proliferation of material that they'd never had access to before or didn't have direct access to. Suddenly it was just like, oh, I can just go grab that off the internet and mess with it. You know, th there was a kind of a, uh, a significant and qualitative change in the, in the technological environment that led to this change in the artistic environment. But I think what Grey Album, the Grey Album is, is different than that because while he keeps the vocals fairly straightforward, uh, Jay-Z's vocals fairly straightforward, he really constructed some really fascinatingly intricate beats and sample, um, um, I don't know what to call them, collections of samples on his backing tracks. So the montage, I think, would be the, the montage. I think, yeah, that's a good, his montages were beautifully intricate, highly deliberate, really complicated, full of all these little subtle references, but also these kind of moments of um, connection between Jay-Z and the Beatles, which, you know, I had this album never existed, I don't think I ever would have made much of the connection between Jay-Z and the Beatles. I don't think I would have sat around thinking, oh, what, what fascinating thematic connections there are between the Black Album and the White Album, even though they're plainly obvious. So in a way, part of what Danger Mouse was doing was taking something that was really prominent in both albums, but the gulf of time and perhaps social spheres that separated them made those connections much more opaque um, than they otherwise would have been. I think, he, I think Danger Mouse brought out a series of thematic and uh, aesthetic connections between the two albums that, as I said earlier, continues to kind of catch my ear and surprise me a little bit. Yeah, it's been a treat for me to go back and listen to this album I probably hadn't listened to in about eight years. I listened to it a ton when it came out. Um, it And it got me back into the Beatles. It got me into Jay-Z in a way I'd never been before. I, I'd sort of written him off along with Puff Daddy as sort of the Jiggy era lightweight and realized, wow, this guy has this serious body of work. And I love the quote from Danger Mouse. He says, I did not make this for music fans. I made it to impress people who are really into sampling. I'm just worried that Jay-Z will like it or whether or not Paul and Ringo will like it. And I found a, a an article that had audio interviews with both Paul McCartney and Jay-Z talking about it. And it literally kind of made me messed up, uh, get a little verklempt, because Jay-Z described it as an honor to be associated with the Beatles, to be playing with the Beatles. And Paul McCartney was like, it's a tribute, man. Like, of course I appreciate it. And I don't know, that really warmed my heart. It just, this, this community of musicians talking to each other and appreciating this third party who brought them together kind of out of nowhere. You know, so um, just a magical moment. And, and I think that the success it enjoyed, you know, was obvious and, uh, and well-deserved, but it was, not a new thing it was very much sort of the pinnacle of that mo movement of uh, the sampling movement which um you know sampling isn't really a big part of modern day hip-hop it's it's all about auto-tune vocals and and things like that and so there was this feeling at the time that this was the absolute cutting edge but really it was more like a victory lap for the sampling movement and you talk about that's why things like the gray out were you know, why Capitol Records lost in a way that, you know, um, 
the the property owners didn't lose in the early 90s de la soul and public enemy and the beastie boys all get crushed but danger mouse didn't get crushed you can still hear this album on youtube you can't get it necessarily on the streaming services but it's out there if you want to hear it and they can't take it away from us so um yeah just awesome stuff and i want to i want to wrap up by letting you bounce off this uh, that this is another quote from you. The perceived corporate censorship of what was clearly a respected work of art set firmly within a well-established tradition, set off a collision between supporters of that tradition and outsiders who clearly had no idea what they were dealing with. Burton both created a friction between his two sources, and he also affects a reconciliation. And it's important because it changed how we think about the traditions of which it is a part. And he managed to make them both unfamiliar and strikingly new while still allowing us to hear what we somehow already knew was in there. And I don't know if I've just taken if, if there's anything to add to that, but like um, if you can put a cherry on top of that, like and and sum up the book and the album and its place in musical history. Sure, sure. Um, so I teach a lot of young people music, and I am quite old, and I don't pretend to relate to them. One of the things that I find I can relate to them with is simply explaining these hidden or subterranean connections between things that are almost always surprising. You know, you find, oh, I didn't know Bessie Smith was in, um, you know, a major film clip in 1931 that she was actually one of the first artists full stop to be on national movie screens or, or and just singing the blues or um i didn't realize that there were nine versions of hound dog before elvis's or um you know by the time danger mouse comes along there was this vibrant underground subterranean network of all these people trading things and manipulating things and sending them back and sharing them in this moment of, I think, some pretty fat, profound idealism. And I think to some extent, this album reflects a certain idealism that sometimes gets a bit lost in music. You know, there's so much hype and there's so much publicity and there's so much PR and, you know, people talking about how they're God and how they're a genius and yada, yada, yada. And it gets very tiresome. Um, and then, you know, you dig into something really deeply. And one of the things that I, I really love, uh, it made me want to write this book, was lecturing about this to people and having them respond, oh, yeah, you know, my dad listened to the Beatles all the time when I was a kid, drove me crazy. But then I got into it. Um, you know, and I, I showed him Jay-Z and he got into that, you know, people sharing things unexpectedly across what otherwise seemed to be kind of fairly significant divides of time and space and, you know, sort of, as I said earlier, kind of these little social bubbles we get into. There's something about music that I think can do that, that I think it's worth not forgetting about. And I've, I feel like the people who champion this album after it was legally threatened are kind of the best example of that. And they're kind of the most sort of optimistic moment in that era for me. And, and, and that's, that's what I'm hoping other people can take away from it. Yeah, absolutely. Looking back on this, I really feel like 
Danger Mouse was, you know, a classic David versus Goliath where he just happened to have the exact right slinging shot and the stone hit the monster, you know, in the exact right spot (laughs) and and we're all the winners. So my guest has been Charles Fairchild. The book is the 33 and a third, um, the gray album. And one last little question on the cover of my copy of the book, at least it's got a completely gray cover it just says yep. danger mouse in black and white there's other versions that have a cartoon of jay-z backed by the beatles were there legal reasons that you couldn't use that cover no there weren't actually um i i um so being an academic one of the things i like to do is sort of get to the origins of things what was the first version what, how did this thing start and what can we take away from its origins moving towards the present and this was actually the first image that was associated with the album and i just thought it was beautiful danger in black mouse in white and the rest in gray i was like that's it that's what i want and uh, so i know there was no uh, there was no uh, legal issue because i, I never tested it um, and I, I thought it best probably not to test it. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Charles, it's been really fun uh, talking about the Grey Album with you. Thanks so much. And hopefully we Absolute can be back pleasure. for your next book. Uh, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boltfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Barry Mazur to discuss his book, Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.